Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. My name's Ruben, and um, my family and I, we normally worship uh, at the Broadview campus, but it's a wonderful privilege to be here today and to share uh, the next, in the next part of our series uh, on the Gospel of Mark, uh, Follow Me, where um, uh, that's exactly what we're doing. We're looking at what it means to, to follow Jesus, who He is, and what it means to follow after Him. So um, uh, that's what we'll be doing today, and we are moving through Mark between now and Easter. Obviously, in broad brushstrokes, there's a lot to cover as we um, kind of move between here and Easter. Um, and uh, so at each point, we are focusing in on the person of Jesus, his, uh, his words, his works, and his ways, as, uh, as Mark recounts them to us. And, um, and so what we want to do, what I want to try and do today, and what I'm hoping to help us do, is to work out uh, both who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Uh, and the, the Gospel of Mark is actually a really helpful place to do that. Um, I don't know if you've been finding this already, if you're in a connect group and um, have started working through this together, or if you've been reading through um, the daily uh, um, material on, on Mark, uh, it is a very helpful place to, to try and dig into both of these things, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Um, because as we saw last week in the opening verse of Mark's Gospel, Mark tells us this is his project, this is why he's written Uh, to us, written to God's people and and why it's lasted through the ages. He says, I am writing to you about the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, So right up front, he said, this is who I think Jesus is and let me show you how that came to be. Let me tell you the story of how Jesus became the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and, and he tells that in a way that shows that it changed his life, it changed the life of many people, and it continues to change people's lives today. My prayer is that it will change our lives, that we uh, will be impacted again, and, and it may be in a fresh way uh, today as we open this story and consider who Jesus is and what it means to follow him together. Now, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, so as we, as we begin, uh, the, there is a thing which might be obvious, but I think it's worth saying at the outset... Uh, and that is that Mark chooses to show us who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in the format of a story. Uh, he shares it in the format of a narrative. Uh, there are other ways that Mark could have introduced us to Jesus. He could have collected, uh, I guess, Jesus' sermons and his sayings uh, into just a series of wise um, statements, but he doesn't choose to do that. He chooses to tell us the story of how Jesus became the Messiah, and so This might seem like a strange place to start, but I do want to begin today just by getting us to think a little bit about how stories work, how narratives work. And so on the screen, uh, you will see, it's a little bit fuzzy, but if you can see, um, this is a series called The Magic Ballerina, a series of books uh, written for children, and the reason I'm showing you this is because I have a six-year-old living in my house, and... (laughs) Uh, she is really into ballerinas and loves this series, and so we've read a lot of it lately. Uh, the book tells a story 
of some young girls who are part of a ballet school. They get magical ballet shoes that can transport them to a land called Enchantia, where all the characters from the ballets live, and um, they go on all sorts of adventures and have problems to solve and, uh, and that kind of thing. So as far as books go, honestly, it wouldn't be my first choice, but um, it's kind of fun, and Elkie loves it, so I guess um, uh, that's cool. Like, I've, I've learned a lot about the world that's created in this story by Darcy Bustle. Uh, and that is, that is what storytellers do. As they tell their story, they invite us into a world which they create for us to explore and to get to know um, what they want to tell us. Darcy Bustle creates this place which is obviously not a real world, but it's very interesting. There are fairies and villains uh, who have magical powers. There are animals that can talk and kids that get up to all sorts of adventures without very many adults around, as is often the case in kids' stories. Now, what about Mark's Gospel? It too is a narrative and Mark is a storyteller. He has the same tools at his disposal as Darcy Bustle. Only he is not trying to tell a magical ballet story, obviously. Rather, he is trying to tell us the real story about the real Jesus. And in doing so, Mark creates a world for us to explore uh, and to be part of as readers And so in the chapters we have today, which is uh, the second half of chapter 1, 2, 3, and we dip a little bit into 5 as well, um, here are some of the features of the world which Mark presents to us, the the world of Mark's narrative. Uh, It's a world in which people do ordinary things like fish, have family businesses. Uh, We meet people who have brothers and fathers and mothers-in-law. They eat, they travel... But one of the really striking features of the world of Mark's Gospel is that it is one in which people experience suffering. Mark shows us a slice of life in the first century. We meet a man with an unclean spirit in chapter 1, verse 21, a woman with a fever, Simon's mother-in-law. In chapter 1, verse 29, we meet a leper, condemned uh, as an outcast because of his uncleanness. He lives at a distance uh, with no real hope of enjoying community life. We meet a paralysed man in chapter 2, a man with a withered hand, which he's had for all his life in chapter 3, a man with a legion of demons who keeps him confined to live amongst the tombs, to live amongst the dead in chapter 5, at the start of chapter 5. We meet a synagogue leader who has a 12-year-old daughter who is dying and then dead. We meet a woman who has been suffering from bleeding for as long as that girl has been alive. And that's just in chapters 1, 3 and 5. If we go across the rest of Mark, we would also meet some others possessed by, uh, by demons or by a demon... Uh, we meet a number of deaf, uh, we meet a deaf and mute man as well as a number of blind men who Jesus interacts with. And so the world of Mark's gospel, it paints a picture of, a, uh, of people who are in great need. It also shows us that Jewish religion, Old Testament religion, was completely unable to help them in that need. In fact, it probably made their experience worse by excluding them and distancing them from community life because of their uncleanness. We can think about it like this. The world of Mark's gospel is one where people live under the shadow of death. 
just to different degrees. It's a world in which people live under the shadow of death. But as people come to Jesus, they find that he is different. He is able to meet their physical needs. He is able to meet more than their physical needs, in fact. He is able to meet their spiritual needs also. Their emotional needs. He forgives sins. He releases people from spiritual oppression. And so these people who give us an insight, a slice of life in the first century, they also end up showing us what trusting Jesus looks like. It actually means coming to him with all of these very real needs as people living in a world under the shadow of death. It means being willing to trust Jesus, the Messiah, is new and better than anything that God has done before and following him into the kingdom of God. That's a snapshot of where we're going to go today. That's what we're going to see over these, um, these couple of chapters. I know that's a kind of bleak way to begin, perhaps, but we really won't get who Jesus is until we are willing to stare the real world in the face and say, yes, the shadow of death hangs over all of us. So what are we going to do about that? Or who is going to do something about that? Perhaps it's an easier week than most to make this point as we face a possible pandemic situation. But if we are willing, like in any given week, if we are willing to just stop distracting ourselves from the obvious for just a few minutes, it's easy to see that Jesus is every bit as relevant to us as he was to these people in Mark's Gospel 2,000 years ago. So how does this work? How does Jesus meet uh, the needs of people who sin and get sick and die and oppressed and are oppressed by forces beyond their control. Well, let's jump closer into the text as we ask, who is Jesus? And the first thing we see is that he is the religion replacer. Uh, so if you do want to follow along, it'll be on screen, but uh, also chapter 2, verses 18 to 22 is what we're uh, looking at just for a while as we jump into this. So the key, this is actually a really helpful key to understanding uh, what is going on as we think about Jesus with respect to, uh, to sickness and, and suffering. Uh, the key to understanding Jesus' relation to these things, it's found in this curious set of sayings, which uh, in my experience, we often skip over in Mark's Gospel because uh, we think, we read them and we think, what on earth is Jesus talking about? I don't know if you've had this experience. It's, these are a puzzling set of verses, but I think they're a really helpful key to understand what is going on here. So, uh, some of John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of, of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So, according to the Jewish religious calendar, it's time to fast. That is the problem here. And people are coming to Jesus and saying, the religious calendar says fasting, you guys are not, what's going on? You're not doing the right thing. Here is Jesus' reply. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Their religious calendar says fast, but they don't perceive what time it is in God's salvation plan calendar. When people say to Jesus, why aren't you fasting? They're not understanding what Jesus is on about. They've actually got things going backwards. 
Mark's told us that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God near. Jesus has said that. I've come to bring the kingdom of God near. That is not a funeral and fasting situation. This present world under the shadow of death, that is a funeral and fasting situation. But Jesus has come to turn a funeral into a wedding feast, into a wedding banquet. Which is, in fact, the language of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. When Isaiah talks about God bringing salvation in the future to his people beyond exile, he does so in terms of a bride and a bridegroom returning to Israel again. He talks about the once destroyed and desolate city of Jerusalem being adorned as a bride in Isaiah 33 and 61. And in Isaiah 25, Isaiah looks forward to a time of great feasting at the end of the ages where God would wipe away death and mourning and tears forever. And so Jesus, by using this wedding imagery, is saying, because I have come, the day Isaiah looked forward to, that day has come. Death is being swallowed up forever. Mourning is being abolished because the cause of humanity's mourning is about to be removed forever. It's not fasting time, it's party time, as Jesus brings the kingdom of God near. But how does that come about? So read on, uh, how does it come about? Uh, Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Two parables, one about a patch, one about wineskins, Uh, Both confusing, uh, I get that, but here is what is going on. The point of the patch is that in Jesus' coming, a whole new thing is happening. We are not meant to think about Jesus as someone who is just coming to patch up the Old Testament system or to patch up Judaism. What he's doing is connected to the Old Testament. The Old Testament anticipates Jesus, but it is not simply just a repair operation. Jesus is bringing about a whole new thing. When Jesus, in all his newness, takes uh, the place of the Old Testament system, uh, trying to fit Jesus into old human religion is just stupid. It's like trying to sew a new patch onto clothes that are destined for the bin. Human religion is part of this fallen world and God is preparing to wrap it up and throw it out like an old garment. That's what Jesus is saying. I've come to do away with the old religion. And the parable of the wineskin makes a similar point. Wine is very often a prophetic symbol of the new age God promised to bring about. Uh, New wine in such abundance is a way of seeing the new age of the Messiah is dawning and it just won't fit into the old way anymore. And so uh, Jesus is saying here it's complete madness to think that he is going to be made to fit into the old way. He's saying, no, forget about that. Something new is coming. You can't think about it as just a repackage or a repair, it's entirely fresh. The coming of of Jesus' kingdom means the coming of a whole new way of relating to God. It, It involves a replacement of religion. It involves the destruction of religion. Here's a quote from an Aussie Bible scholar, Peter Bolt. Uh, You'll see him on screen, how can you not trust a guy with a moustache like that? Uh, Has some very helpful words though. Um, 
just reflecting on this, he says, Jesus has not come to join a system whose rules and regulations could speak only of sinfulness, uncleanness, sickness, mourning, decay and death. It's clear that the opposition between life and death is fundamental to the whole ritual Old Testament law. Death is the great evil and everything suggesting it, from corpses to bloody discharge to skin disease, makes people unclean and therefore unfit to worship God. Jesus has not come to be absorbed by this religion of tears. He's the bridegroom, bringing the great time of last day's feasting when the shroud of death is finally cast away once and for all. It's a great picture, isn't it? These confusing verses actually tell us so much about who Jesus is and what he's on about. There are so many examples in Mark 1, 3 and 5 of of how Jesus is the religion replacer, how that's such good news. I'm just going to show us two um, very briefly, uh, but I reckon as you read through this part of Mark by yourself or in connect groups, um, keep asking this question, how is Jesus' way so much better than the way of Old Testament religion? Uh, So uh, example one, uh, I'm not going to put the verse on the screen, just listen to the, the story as I tell it, Jesus heals on the Sabbath from chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand, shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Hear all the rules and regulations, the restrictions that people are trying to impose on Jesus to the detriment of this man. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus said to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill. They remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See, this is both a picture of the complete corruption in the leaders of the old religion that Jesus is speaking about replacing. Jesus brings life, they plot death. But at its heart, it shows how human religion harms this man. Jesus won't have a bar of it. It is clear to Jesus that the Sabbath is meant to be life-giving. The great irony here is that the religious leaders, they get grumpy at Jesus for doing what they think of as work. He's breaking the rules by healing But on the very same Sabbath, they get hard to work. Doing what? Plotting to kill Jesus. No wonder God replaces that kind of religion. Example two, uh, healing and forgiving sins without relying on a temple or sacrifice. This is from chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum again, the people heard that he had come. They gathered, such a large number, gathered it in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? 
to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You see, Jesus does not only do something about this man's spiritual problem, his sin, that no one else had been able to, Jesus meets his most important need. Uh, So Jesus not only deals with his physical problem, which no one else had been able to deal with, he deals with his most important problem, that is his spiritual need, his sin. And uh, that is a problem that we all have, isn't it? The important thing to see here is that Jesus meets this need directly. There's no appeal to Old Testament sacrificial system. There's no priests, no elaborate ritual. Jesus simply uh, speaks with the authority to forgive on the basis that people come to him, to God's Messiah in faith, that he alone can do something about their situation. The leaders of the old system say blasphemy. They can't see that God's doing something new, but the people get it, the crowds get it. They are amazed. They say, we've never seen anything like this, and they praise God. Okay, so who is Jesus? He is the one who replaces religion, uh, which is very good, good news for those who need more than the old system could ever provide. Uh, Jesus forgives sins, he heals in a way that is completely new. Uh, it's a reflection of the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. He's bringing the kingdom of God near. So that is who Jesus is with respect to sin and sickness, Now, what does it look like to follow him as we bring things together? What kind of response is needed if we actually want to come to Jesus and follow him into uh, this kingdom that he is welcoming people into? Very helpfully, Mark shows us what this looks like through the story of a sick girl and her father, uh, Jairus, in Mark chapter 5. And here we see... Uh, that Jesus brings a new way, and this new way is faith in the Messiah. In distinction to the old system, uh, to the religion which Jesus has come to replace, following Jesus looks like having faith in God's Messiah, faith in Jesus. Uh, Let's read together uh, this story. So, um, Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now in this story, uh, Jairus is named uh, at the beginning as Jairus, we get to meet him by his name, but for the rest of the story, we are told he is a synagogue leader, uh, an official with a very high position. What do you think the point is that Mark is trying to make by referring to Jairus in this way? Despite his high position, like he is the lead pastor of a church, essentially, despite his high position in Judaism, the Jewish religion could provide absolutely no help for this father of a daughter who is about to die. 
but he's heard about someone who is able to meet needs like this. He's heard about Jesus. So he reaches out to Jesus, who has by now gotten a reputation as someone who can, who can do something, who can heal, and he says to Jesus, can you help me? This is a move towards Jesus in faith. Jesus uh, gets delayed in this interaction by, um, an, uh, by a, a bleeding woman, a woman, as, as I mentioned earlier, who had been bleeding for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Uh, he's delayed by interacting with her. She receives healing as well. He says to her, your faith has made you well. She goes away restored with her life back. But then news comes to Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Jairus's servants say, leave Jesus alone, there's nothing more he can do for you. Jesus overhears this conversation and has an important lesson for Jairus that day and a lesson for all of us. So we keep reading in verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. You see, in his despair upon hearing that his daughter had died... Jesus called upon Jairus to have faith even in the face of death. Jairus did and discovered that Jesus was more than worthy of that trust. Even when faced with humanity's last and greatest enemy, we discover, that, we discover exactly what the Messiah is truly capable of. He is one who can even defeat death. He can defeat sickness, he can defeat oppression. He is the one who can also defeat death. So here is the invitation for all of us. We've seen who Jesus is. We've seen uh, that he is someone who, can, who is doing a new thing, who can do something that's never been able to be done before and who continues to do that new thing. Here is what it looks like to, to follow him with respect to both physical need and sin. Jesus gives us the same invitation he gave to Jairus. The invitation is, don't be afraid, just believe. Come to Jesus in faith. Jesus' life, death and life again has permanently changed this world. It will never be the same again. Religion has been replaced there is now one who forgives sins, heals sickness, releases from oppression, can give life to the dead. He is alive. He rules this world. He is running a kingdom that is growing 
every day and will one day be the experience of this world in fullness when he returns. We don't need to pretend that we can rely on ourselves. We can do like Jairus, who knew he had no resources. He knew that Jesus was his only hope. We can be like him. We don't need to pretend we can rely on ourselves or on the flimsy security structures of this world. We don't need to hide in distraction from reality. We do live in a world under the shadow of death. That's true, but this is also true. There is one who is able to say to us, do not be afraid, only believe, and believing in him makes perfect sense. Doing that makes perfect sense. Jesus is not promising that all our problems will go away now if we have faith in him, but he is promising that if we have faith in him, there is absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of us enjoying the life of God's kingdom both now and forever and ever. There's nothing that can stand in the way of us being with Jesus, the bridegroom, enjoying that great banquet and new wine of the age to come. So, in a world living under the shadow of death, we may actually live as people who have no fear of death. We may live as people who have no fear of death. And you know what? People who know that and people who live that out, people who have that kind of faith in Jesus, people like Jairus, they are not only people who have their world changed by Jesus, they are the kind of people that Jesus uses to change the world as he brings his kingdom near. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus. We thank you that his kingdom has been brought near, that this world has been permanently changed because of that. Because he has come, this world will never be the same. Thank you for your concern for us, the people who live in a world that is under the shadow of death. We thank you that you don't leave us helpless. That by coming to Jesus, we come to one who has replaced the old way and brought about something entirely new. We come to one who is able to uh, hear our cries for help and do something about them, who is able to do something about sickness and death and oppression uh, someone who is the king of a kingdom of life, of plenty, of, uh, of a great banquet. We thank you that you have turned this funeral of a world into the kind of place where there will be no cause for mourning uh, ever again when your kingdom comes in its fullness. As we wait for that time, help us to be people who live out the truth that there is no need to fear. There's no need to fear death we may come to Jesus in faith and follow him into his kingdom as we wait for it to be brought in its fullness. We ask that you'd give us the courage uh, to do this, to live it out each day, uh, the, the courage to invite others into it. There's no shortage of opportunities to, uh, to speak to people who fear this world, who live without the certainty that perhaps many of us here enjoy and so help us to be generous as we share the news that we've heard today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.